Welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, chatting to some of the UK's leading business professionals, sharing tips, insights, and advice on how to create amazing customer experiences whilst building bigger, better, and more profitable businesses as a result. What can you do in your business today and in the years to come to truly delight your clients? What exceptional experiences can you give them to take away and cherish? How can you delight the most important person in the world? Satisfaction makes you one of many. Delighting clients makes you the only one. And you can't be just one. You have to be the only one. Welcome to the Only One Business Show, and in the studio today, I've got a wonderful guest for you. The gentleman who's a specialist in businesses that succeed and grow by delivering consistent quality, service, and experience in premium segments. Having run five such businesses himself as MD and as Chief Executive, his last employed role was running a £16 million turnover family business, having previously been Chief Executive of a listed PLC. He now runs MD2MD, an organisation that runs private meetings where leaders develop their strategic thinking through discussion or peer discussion. He also provides mentoring, coaching um, around business leadership, growth, merger integration and exit planning, as well as facilitating board workshops. He's passionate about the positive impact that most SME businesses have on society and is fascinated by the challenges that adolescent businesses face as they transition from small to medium. Please welcome... Bob Bradley. Bob, hi. Nice to see you. Hi, James. Good to see you again. So uh, it's been a, a little while since we've been in touch, and obviously we've had a little chat today. How's, how's life treating you, Bob? Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm managing to uh, enjoy the sunshine, work hard, have good fun at work, and also have plenty of time to travel the world. Well, that, that sounds uh, that sounds absolutely terrible, to be honest. <laughs> if there was another way of adding an extra bit into that, I think most people would be pretty jealous. Um, adolescent businesses, Bob, what do you mean by that? It's a term that I, uh, I don't know whether I heard of or I invented. It's the idea that just as teenagers uh, in the human being world go through a troublesome adolescence, mm-hmm. uh, my experience is a lot of businesses do too. Uh, right. There's a lot of startups, there's lots of large companies. The difficult bit, I think, is the bit in the middle. So typically in the kind of growth of a business, when, when would that come about? Is there a, is there a, t- a particular time or is it just, it, does it depend? It, it links to the scale of operation, probably in terms of the number of people. Uh, I think of it as somewhere between 10 and 30 or 40 people. Right. Um, it's where when you, you know about it when you're talking to somebody because the basic conversation is, Oh, Bob, if only I could get everybody to do everything exactly how I want them to do, to do it, as yeah. well as I want them to do it as quickly and as enthusiastically and as passionately as I want them to do it, and I do it myself. Um, but they won't. They don't. They do all their own things, and uh, I'm running around in circles trying to keep them, keep them all heading in the right direction, and I can't do it anymore. You know, with a 12-year-old in the house who uh, thinks he's about 16, I completely identify with that. And in the business world, I think it's um, it's a yeah, fascinating time. You're in, with, through MD to MD, obviously, you come across huge numbers of businesses and have done for many years. What's the challenge at the moment? What, what is the big problem that most businesses are seeing or the big challenge that the businesses you're in touch with are going through? 
Well, actually dropping the at the moment bit, I mean, it relates to this adolescent business thing. I think it is a real challenge to transition and to scale up from a small startup to a medium-sized business. And it's a, it's a challenge because of personalities. You see, the person that starts a business very often is very passionate about solving that customer problem or getting their technology to market or getting their product invented or whatever it is. Uh-huh. Um, and you know they, they haven't got a lot of money behind them unless you know they've raised venture capital or something. But very often it's very tightly run business, very driven by a very controlling, very focused, very um, irrational in some ways person who really wants to make this happen you know uh, alan sugar is admired as a great entrepreneur by many people mm-hmm. uh you know he was not nuts you know the <laughs> idea of putting a pc in the home and selling to consumers was crazy at the time yeah but he made it happen just by sheer bloody mindedness um yeah. and you know that those characteristics are what in my experience gets a startup on, on you know underway and going nicely the problem is those are the opposite of the characteristics that you need to run a organization of scale. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't do everything yourself. You can't shout at everybody when you've got 1,000 people working for you or 500 people working for you. You know, you have to have systems and structures and bureaucracy and managers and meetings and all this stuff that they hate. Mm-hmm. And either the entrepreneur transitions their own themselves or they find somebody else to work alongside them for them um, or to hand over to uh, that takes the business through that next stage of that, through that growth pattern. If that, that makes that's, sense. that's quite a famous thing, isn't it? When you, you talk about people like uh, Richard Branson, for instance, who, who famously surrounds himself with people he needs um, and people who can do the things that he doesn't want to do himself. Um, yeah. And I guess that's, that's a difficult thing to detach from when it's, the business is growing and you're really very passionate about it. I think there's, it's, it's more... Um, I totally agree with what you're saying, and I think the smart leader surrounds themselves with people that are better than themselves at whatever they're doing. But it's even more crunchy than that, okay. in that actually you surround, you're giving, you know, your baby that mm-hmm. you've nurtured from sort of growth till twelve year old. Yeah. Um, you're giving it over to somebody else to lead and run, and you've got to be able to trust them to do that if it's going to be successful. Uh, so it's it's uh, you know quite a tough emotional challenge. As I say, some people can make that transition, but in my experience, not many can. And indeed, my my career was picking up where the entrepreneur lost, lost you know um, was plateauing because that's usually the sim- symptom. Right, the business starts right. to plateau and they're running around in circles trying to make it grow and it won't grow anymore. So is that the point where something like MD to MD, a peer network like yours, is 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 the right kind of move for those businesses? Oh, absolutely. Um, that's the, the uh, yes, where we began, really. That's the common theme um, from all of our members. Our members are what I call operational leaders, tens or hundreds of staff. Uh, they are going through the transition from uh, small business below 10, where most of the time you're doing or selling yourself, uh, through to the thousand point where you know, you've become a corporate. And so they're going through exactly these sort of growth pains, building the team, learning how to lead a team, delegate authority, put structures in place, put schemes in place, put policies, procedures, systems in place mm-hmm. um, without doing too much of it, I should emphasize as well. <laughs> That's the challenge because if you over-engineer the business, it won't succeed either. Well, so you end up doing a lot of, of that stuff and not much of the business. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a, you know there's a it's a it's a tricky job, and that's why I talk about it as like 
being a bad listener. I get your idea. I completely understand your fascination. Where does service fit then within within the context of these businesses as they're growing or as they're starting? Um, you mean customer service, James? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting question to focus on because uh, it's at that scale where it becomes really tricky because you'll see there's loads of speakers on customer service mm-hmm. and they'll talk you you know they'll talk to you about you know, attitude, customer-centric, customer-first, that sort of thing. Yeah. That's only about the hotel where, you know, customers are welcomed by name, you know, because the doorman's being briefed by the security guard who sees the registration, all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they make it sound like it's all about mindset and enthusiasm and caring for the customer from the staff. Mm-hmm. And to a degree, yes, it had, that has to be there. But to deliver it at scale is actually slightly slightly unusual um i th- in that or, or has a dimension which people miss okay and that is that i think people get confused between being customer focused yeah and doing everything every customer wants right uh i'm completely with being customer focused yeah but when you're doing at scale that does not mean doing everything every customer wants you know the the, the if you try and do that you'll trip over you'll get it wrong and you'll disappoint people and let them down. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's uh, I, I, a lot of the examples that you, you hear in the in the in the wider world and through speakers, I guess, and through, even myself, uh, a lot of these examples come out of the hospitality industry because it's one which is very obvious. Uh, you know, we all go out for meals or or walk into pubs or whatever it is and look at how we're we're looked after. Um, but there's a lot of sequence and a lot of uh, of process that goes behind how that works. Um, when it's over-processed, I think then that's the point where we notice it. When it's done as a matter of um, as good training, then, you know, people are customer-focused, but they also take the time to to care about the individual people. Yeah, I, I would ch- challenge or, or sort of add another slant to it. It's mm-hmm. um, you can be over-processed, but you can also be under-processed. Right. Um, and that's where the trap is that a lot of people don't see and where, you know, I have issue with some of the hype merchants that, you know, it's all about attitude and 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 wanting to serve the customer. See, at scale, I mean, I, I, would, I would be very pedantic in the words I'm about to use mm-hmm. that to deliver excellent customer service at scale requires you to listen to the customers, mm-hmm. plural. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I say customers I'm, i emphasize the plural and then manage their expectations and be appropriately consistent and firm with the single customer right um so you know you you at scale you can't do everything every customer asks for unless you have a way of making sure you can deliver it again and again and you know if you're running a chain of hotels and at one hotel um yeah an enthusiastic uh member of staff is able to uh, do some great stuff on that day for that customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they go to another branch of the same chain and don't get it, there's a problem. Yeah. That customer is then disappointed because their expectations have been set set uh, wrongly. You know, you have to be very careful about ad hoc requests and getting special service for one person from one person. Yeah. Because yeah. unless the organisation is geared up to deliver that for everybody every time, it will go wrong. And so I would say you have to know what your positioning is in the marketplace and make sure that your systems and cultures are geared up to match 
the expectations you realistically set your customers in your marketing, if I'm making any sense. Yeah, no, you are absolutely. But in a perfect world, I guess you'd understand the core values of the business and the core value of the people that you're hiring, you're interviewing, and then you interview against those core values to try and provide people who are complementary to your business. Um, if you can do that, then you end up with you know a good mixture of staff. Um, the reality, though, is that it doesn't always work that way. Um, people hire for lots of different reasons. And even in, in the big hotel chains, you know, getting the mindset right of every person. I can't, I, I, it, it, I worked for Hilton Group a long, long time ago. Um, yeah. You know, and there's guys being paid £4 an hour to do one job and guys being paid £20 an hour to do another one. Um, and, you know, although we do hear great stories of, you know, the, the doorman who worked his way up to managing director, those people are as, as rare as rotten horse teeth. Um, and actually most people are there to do a good job. Um, it's just the, the odd one who does an exceptional job. I, I, I take your point very nicely about the, uh, the one person to one person. Um, they're the only stories that people talk about, though, and so it's important, I guess, in all businesses that we have the, the opportunity to delight people so that they then talk about us more. For me, successful customer service means you consistently meet or exceed or delight the customer. Um, and the, yeah. the, the, the word that people miss in that is the consistently. Uh, and that to do that, you've got to do a few things. You've got to understand exactly who your customers are, and I'm using customers with a plural there, and what the needs are yeah, yeah. really well. Note the plural. You know, it's, it's, um, yeah. it's not this single customer you need to be thinking about as the MD. It's the customer set and what their needs are. You then need to set the expectations yeah. clearly and accurately in the marketing. Um, the reason we've had so much fuss about broadband speeds in this country is not that the broadband suppliers are not delivering, you know, fairly reasonable broadband. It's that they've said it's 20 megabits per second and only, then only deliver 10 megabits per second. You know, it is yeah, the yeah. Um, expectation setting that's gone wrong, not the delivery of the service. Uh, it, yeah. You need to develop people well. I totally, uh, you know, uh, reinforce what you're saying about people. All I'm saying is you also need to build systems and processes that enable them to deliver that service consistently. Um, and if you leave it all to the frontline staff, uh, it can work depending on the business, depends on your position. You know, let's take the example of a restaurant. If you are the mm -hmm. local Italian restaurant, owner-managed, with a couple of dozen yeah. staff, then you don't need a lot of systems and processes. You need a, the, the right attitude in those people and you can deliver a great service because they do what they need to do for the customers that come in each night. And the boss is only around yeah. the corner in the other room and they can talk to them and, you know, and can deal with it and can sort things mm -hmm. out. At the other end of the scale, if you're McDonald's and somebody comes in and says, you know those beef burgers you do? Well, could you, could you make me one with lamb instead of beef? Um, and the, if the local person says, oh, yes, I can do that, yeah, I'll go and get some lamb and I'll mince it up or whatever, delighted customer yeah. that day for that branch. But what happens when they go to McDonald's down the road next, you know, in the next town next week? You know, it's it, McDonald's succeeds because it consistently meets or exceeds expectations. Yes, expectations are not, you know, are not world shattering. Uh, expectations mm -hmm. are around quick and cheap. Uh, and so they meet yeah. those expectations. They don't pretend to be something they're not. 
No, they, they, I mean, that's a business which actually started in a, in an interesting way with the way that they used to make chips originally and how they kept their potatoes and, and how they got the consistent flavour from each place to each place. But even with McDonald's, going from, you know, the original how many, three or four shops to, to more, was a nightmare for them. Mm. Um, and, and it was all about process and the only way they could do it was putting those systems and processes in place. You talked about the needs of the, the customers, plural. How do you understand those? Uh, listening, uh, measuring, learning. Uh, one of my um, key beliefs is that you have to work really hard to listen to your customers as a group as say, I distinguish from the. I mean, I'm not saying don't listen to the individual customer, um, sure. but you know, you you need to need to do enough research so you aren't distracted by the one squeaky wheel that makes a lot of noise, um, and you're looking at what does the the marketplace need. I suppose that's probably a better term than customers. Um, understand right. what they really want and really need. You know, the, take the McDonald's example. You know, if the McDonald's says no to the guy who wants a lamb burger because they don't sell it, um, mm -hmm. you know, that customer is not going to be happy. But uh, the customer set as a whole, however many hundred thousand they serve every day in the, across the country, are going to be happier because they deliver beef burgers regularly, reliably sort of thing. Um, yeah. So it's about measuring results and, and consistently. My background is service businesses, training companies. Um, mm -hmm. Every single delegate going through every single course we would take feedback from. Qualitative, you know, sort of words that tell you how, you know, what their feelings were and what could have been better, the detail. Mm -hmm. And we used to look at those. Um, but also quantitative. We used to look at we had average scores for every center, we had every score, average scores for every lecturer. We had every scores for every course. And we, mm -hmm. we knew which courses would score, you know, what on average when you're talking about a significant number of people. We were talking about 500 people going through our training centers every day. So we could yeah. average them up and we, we knew what worked and what didn't work. And we could keep trying to improve um, based on the feedback. Uh, and it's a little bit more I'll just give you there. We had a process called two's follow-up. So if somebody scored two out of five or less, we would follow yeah. them up and ring wow. them up and we'd ask them, what is it that meant you only scored two? How can we do better? Um, and likewise, if somebody scored five, we'd ring up and say, what is it we did that made you feel so good about our course? And because uh, we'd like to make sure we do it for everybody else. <laughs> do a lot more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what was interesting was that with, with the, um, uh, the twos, was about 50% of the twos at first sight, were saying, it's not your problem. I was on the wrong course. And oh. so our team initially was putting those in a box saying, not our problem, forget it, etc., etc." Me yeah. being awkward and having a bit of provocative customer service background uh, yeah. said, no, hold on a minute. Why are they on the wrong course? Yeah. We need to find that out because they're still not happy, even if they don't blame us for it. And after doing some digging around, you discover that your course specifications in your course catalogue weren't quite accurate. Okay. So actually, the problem was with us in the first place. Even though they didn't blame us, we yeah. hadn't done enough to make sure the right person's on the right course and they were satisfied. 
And were these people, Bob, who were coming individually or were they being sent by the businesses? They were generally being sent by the businesses. Um, right. There was some individuals so somebody else as well. was potentially making the decision as to who, as to what course to send them on, yeah. but they were using your collateral as, a, as the guide. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we, we, you know, when we track this down to the root cause, which is a mm-hmm. technique I'd recommend, you know, trying to understand, well, why does that happen? And taking ownership of customer satisfaction. If these people are not happy, it, whether they blame us or not, it's our responsibility to try and work out why they're not happy and how do we fix that. And so yeah, we, we, yeah. we learned to spell out the criteria, you know, what, what skills you needed to before you went on the course a lot more carefully because then when people came on our courses, they were happier. So when, when, when that was all changed, do you then go and obviously you're still getting the same feedback process? How, how did it improve? I, I can't tell you the answer on that one because that was a long-term sort of cultural change. You know, we didn't instantly right. change the catalogs. It was a me as MD changing the um, beliefs of the team about whose fault it was from, you know, it's the okay. customer's fault for buying the one course to, um, uh, to us having specifying better. So it had a lot, it was a difficult to measure the direct effect, but I can tell you about something we did do that was quite an interesting story that was much more tangible. Um, right. where there was a direct measure. Now, excuse me if I haven't got the numbers precisely right, but basically the situation was that um, in our training centres, in the toilets, we had toiletries. Right. Um, you know, part of us positioning ourselves as a, as a great company, you know, you've got some aftershave legents and uh, some similar stuff in the, the ladies. And uh, one day my ops director came to me and said, you know what, Bob, we spend £200,000 a year on these toiletries. And I'd had the team do some work on this. And mm-hmm. every, you know, they looked at them every day, and they're never used. You know, they hardly wow. ever get used, and then they disappear. Somebody's nicked them. Uh, so all we're doing with that £200,000 is, is giving it to thieves. So I reckon we shouldn't be bothering. You know, I don't think anybody cares about toiletries because they don't use them. And the only people uh, that are benefiting from it are the thieves. Right. Convincing case. Um, sensible and of course every business is trying to drive its profits all the time as well as deliver customer service of course and mm-hmm. this didn't see you know our thought was this isn't going to affect people because they don't use them anyway so we yeah. took the toiletries out of the toilets and because we measured we knew what happened uh, this center was let's say an average of 7.4 center that we you know the average across 500 people per day was always about 7.4 within a within a small amount um, okay. because when you add these numbers up they do you know, there was a pattern to them. Uh, and within days, it dropped by two points to 7.2 as a centre. Wow. Um, and it was like, what's gone on? And the, we did some more digging around and the ops director, you know, I called the ops director in, what's happened to our quality score in this centre? You know, why has it gone wrong? Well, you remember we talked about the toiletries, we took them out. Um, well, something's going wrong here. Let's try and understand it again. So we went and did some interviews and got some work done trying to understand what, you know, there's 500 people going through each day was going on. And um, the light bulb moment was when we realised that although they didn't use the toiletries, the very presence of the toiletries in the toilets sent them a message saying we were a quality organisation. Isn't that interesting? And so we put them back because 7.4 versus 7.2 sent us a signal that, you know, we'd reduced the quality perception of our clients. Now, you could argue that did we really need to have the toiletries there? Well, maybe not. But if that's what it, if that's what was what mattered in the customer's mindset and their beliefs about 
were we delivering a good service or not, you had to deal with it. You know, you had to, reality. You know, that's what I mean by understanding customer needs very, very carefully. It isn't always the obvious. It is perception as much as reality in many cases. And, you know, you've got to work at this. It's not simple. I, I, I really like that example. It's um, it's the kind of thing that, that people don't necessarily think about. And uh, I'm going to knock accountants for a moment, being one I think I'm allowed to. But it, uh, often the numbers are, are not as they seem. And, and you know, there's, there's plenty of examples of, of managers who cut costs out, like your toiletries, and are held, you know, held on the shoulders at, at board meetings about a wonderful you know, increases in profit as a result of this person. What they don't notice is then the, the, the negative knock-on for the business in the future. And when that division closes, they don't then point at the person who got rid of the toiletries. They blame something else. And there's lots of examples in, in many, many businesses of small things like that, which actually matter very much to people. Yeah. And it's it's getting, and it's never big things. It's the little things that make the difference, as somebody said once. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. yeah, I mean, you could argue technically that the toiletries weren't important or shouldn't, well, shouldn't be important, but they clearly sent a signal. And that was important in terms of the perceptions of the delegates being sent on a course. And actually, if you think about the motivation of companies sending people on a training course, the companies are sending people on a training course, yes, because they want the skills, but it's also got lots of other um connotations about reward and motivation of their staff and things like this you know their staff want to feel good about working for their employer so we were part Absolutely. of that picture and if we make them feel good about working for their employer because our courses are great then we're providing a better service to our customers and the course is very much about everything attached to the course um you know when uh, when when i do training for for businesses and i'm put in a nice hotel um the whole thing changes out of sight you know, you can go into a into a very sterile boardroom and, you know, they have to make their own coffee and that's one thing. But going somewhere more pleasant, change of environment, you know, slightly nicer, um, even a decent coffee can make a whole world of difference to people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you, the, the one thing that I think is also interesting with that is that people attach, their um, mindset attaches to those little things. So if they see nice toiletries and they see nice coffee and everything's clean and tidy and it's all very much as they would hope it to be, then they don't feel or they don't look for any other inconsistencies. If they go into the bathroom and, you know, the tiles are chipped and there's a bit of this paper missing from one of the loos and all that sort of thing, then they start to wonder what else is being missed. Yeah, um, and it's an interesting knock-up. I, I would emphasize that I'm. I mean, whilst I'm sort of saying you pay attention to numbers, say, pay attention to the process. I, my key message, I think, is about saying it's understanding your chosen customer base and their reasonable expectations and and how you manage their expectations. Because it may be that there is a customer set that wants. We were a premium provider. We were providing okay. high quality courses to the to sort of senior people. Um, it could be that there is another subset of the market that wants the cheapest possible um, and is prepared to, you know, and, and doesn't worry about those things. Indeed, would say having toiletries and toilets probably shows that we're, you know, we're not the right course. So I'm, I, what I'm saying is it's about getting the processes and cultures in line with your chosen business strategy. Um, yeah. You know, if, you're, if your business position is a Ryanair, you do it one way. If your business position is Emirates, you do it a different way. Both are perfectly viable business models and both are successful organizations based on setting customers' expectations. In Emirates' case, you know, knowing you're going to be 
um, cosseted and treated really well, and it's worth the extra money. In Ryanair's case, knowing that all they care about is on time and, and cheap, and that you're not going to get any niceties, but they will get you there on time and cheap most of the time. And if they don't, they'll uh, be quite hard-nosed about you know, the way they manage it. The airline thing's a funny thing, though, because it's um, even though we know Ryanair's cheap and we pay that, we, you know, we, we go with them because it's cheap, people still complain about the service. Um, I, I flew uh, recently with Wizz Air, who are a similar thing, um, and my flight was £13 to, to Lithuania. Now, you can't even travel to London from where I live for that. Um, but people were complaining on the thing that there wasn't enough choice of food. And that, that, 13 quid, what do you want? That's exactly what I'm saying about you cannot listen to every single individual customer. And that's the mistake some people make in customer services. Uh, you know, now I'm not saying you can't listen. You can listen. You should listen to them. I, let me correct myself. Um, but that doesn't mean to say you have to adjust for them. Because if you are running Wizz Air or Ryanair and you do all the other things, you'll go bust and you won't be there in six months' time. So... It's about yeah. being clear about what your business, your chosen market position is, and then building the systems and the cultures and the people uh, around that. And that, that that could be, you know, and there's a whole range of different ways of doing it. You know, the the, the Ryanair's of the world have to be have to give their front end staff very limited discretion and yeah. insist that they follow the processes um, systematically and reliably. Emirates. I hope and I believe they give their front-end staff a lot more discretion to do what's necessary to satisfy the customer. Um, it's it's neither is right or wrong. It's just understanding what is our chosen market position um, and let's let's focus on, on that and make sure we set expectations in our marketing that are accurate and set expectations in our operations that are accurate and... Yeah, and if you're Ryanair, Ryan, uh, you know, I'm measuring success not by the number of people who whinge and complain, but by the business's longevity and ability to survive and, and grow and do more. People like Ryanair, even if they pretend they hate, hate Ryanair, they still buy it. Well, absolutely. Otherwise, they, you know, they wouldn't be here. And they've been, they, I think the longevity thing you mentioned is interesting because that business has been around a very, very long time where others have gone pop. Yeah. Um, and so it's uh, you know it's obviously a model that works very well. With those low cut low price businesses, you mentioned that you know they can't, they can't do a lot of things because of the costs and what have you. But is there something that they can learn from? Can Ryanair learn from Emirates? Can Ryanair learn from Ritz Carlton? Can they take aspects of their process and put it into a low cost environment? I think it can work both ways because what a great organisation is doing is looking at where its costs come from, what drives its costs, looking very carefully at what it costs, its customers value and trying to identify things that they do that cost money that the customer doesn't value or things the customers value that don't cost very much. Right. Um, and then having done that, trying to work out how to you know, how to optimize, if you like. For me, customer service, customer value is about matching. It's about doing well the things the customer values and spending money on things the customer values and not spending money on things they don't value. Um, a, a very simple example, and I know it irritates many people, and it does me too, is you want, a lot of products nowadays don't have instruction books. 
Right. Um, now, that's for a very good reason. It's because most people, you know, you've, you, you, the joke about, you know, RTFM, you, you know, people don't look at the instruction books historically. <laughs> um, and yet, actually, some products, the instruction book was costing more to develop than the product. Um, and, you know, then over the last 30 years, people begun to realize, well, why are we spending all this money on an instruction book that uh, gets out of date because we keep changing the product and, and we can't maintain? Isn't it better to provide it on a, on a website or a DVD originally and now on a website? Um, mm-hmm. Zero incremental cost. We can keep it up to date much better. And we don't have to produce, print it in order to, and distribute it and deliver it for somebody to sort of take out the box and throw away and ignore does that change people's perception of the business, though, when they or, or the product? Because I know that, uh, you know, in my mind, I, I, I find it irritating that I have to go and look elsewhere for something. But also, I find it more irritating when I buy, perhaps, for instance, I bought a, a microphone recently, and it came with four instruction booklets in, in about 20 languages. Um, <laughs> you know, so most of those are going to go in the bin. For, so to me, that just seems like environmental terrorism. Um, um, and extremely wasteful. I'm with you, and that, that's, I think, to do regulation. I'm not close enough to the industry to know, but I get irritated right. by that, thinking, well, if you're going to print things, print something useful to me. You know, um, but, yeah, um, you, you, you know, uh, it's it's trying to understand, you know, regulations apart, it's trying to understand what is it the customer really values and actually wants, um, and yeah. how do we deliver that, you know, most effectively. And, you know, the reality was people didn't value instruction manuals. That's why they never looked at them. Uh, and, okay, it's inconvenient not to have them now and to have to look them up. Uh, but interestingly, some things have gone the other way. I was just, just sort of bumped into my head was the example, again, a story many people talk about, about customer service or product or quality of product. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know whether you're aware of the Apple boxes on the early iPhones and how much attention Steve Jobs put into making sure the box open would stay half open if you held it from the top um, and how they invest a lot of money in designing really high-quality box. Now, that's really ironic, really. They, they don't bother the instruction manual. They spend a lot of money having a really nice box. Well, that was about the uh, – that was, was, was didn't that story start with him watching a child opening the Christmas present and the anticipation of opening that present and how long it took to get into it? Yeah. Because they, they, did, they did some um, – I'm a bit of an Apple fan. I read some some things about that packaging. They have a department, don't they? Have packaging, um, but they also there's there's a way that they reduce the uh, the pressure inside the box. So the first time you open it, it actually opens much slower than the second time. Mm. The way they depressurize it, but it's it, but that expectation. You if you're you, you know when you buy a, a car. Um, the, the, the cheaper manufacturers, and I don't think such things are cheap car anymore, but the cheaper manufacturers l- use some of the tricks of the, of the more expensive ones. So they give you a little box with a key ring and a chain and a, and a, and a drink thing and a, and a pen and, and make you feel a little bit more special about your purchase. And most of us, when we do that, or when we go away from that kind of thing, just feel that little bit of extra quality. Yeah. Um, which make, makes a big difference. And that's exactly what Steve Jobs is doing. You know, he understood Apple's position in the marketplace. You know, they were not simply supplying a bit of technology. They were supplying an experience. They were supplying something that said something about you. And so, you know, the packaging had to be consistent with that message. And he, you know, hence the investment, you know, it's ridiculous if you think about it in a sort of hard-nosed, logical um engineering view of it to spend so much money and time and on 
you know, reducing the pressure inside the packaging. But Steve Jobs got that what customers valued was the feeling about themselves they got from having their product. Um, things like that. That's part of the value. This is what I mean by understanding customer needs is, is quite, uh, it's not easy. It's not always the obvious. There's a lot of subtlety as to what people uh, really value. And Steve Jobs had worked out that people valued the impression they got when they first opened the product. And that was part of why they were paying a premium for Apple. Um, they didn't value the instruction book, so you don't get the instruction book. You just get a really nice box. Yeah, and was the and the instruction book thing? I think was interesting as well with them because they 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 sold they sold basically on the you know just works was their their motto, wasn't it? At one point, yeah, or something along those lines. Um, particularly when you bought a PC and you had to spend the first three hours getting all the crap off it you didn't want in the first place to make it work the way you wanted to. Well, theirs just got on with it, and uh, so we don't need the instruction book because it's so simple. Um, but uh, it, it, there's, there's lots of bits and pieces to it. When you look at the smaller businesses, when you look at the, the small and, and adolescent or the, the juvenile and adolescent businesses that you, you come across, which are the ones who are doing this the best? It's difficult to generalise, but the immediate reaction is the ones that think about what I've just been talking about, that think about who is the customer, why are they buying, what do they want, what really matters to them, and how do we deliver that to them uh, effectively, efficiently, economically, um, and are clear about the extent to which that needs to be an automated routine process and the extent to which that has to be a, a flexible, personalised process. I mean, I, and actually, I'm just sidetracking to talk about my challenge in running MD2MD for a moment. And one of the things I feel is a challenge in running my business, MD2MD, is that mm-hmm. Our customers are business leaders. They're senior people whose time is precious and who expect high quality. Um, Now, what they mean by quality is that the the meetings are organized reliably, consistent. They get emails out on time. They get noticed. They get get the information they need when they need it, all that sort of stuff. Um, So for that to work, I have tried to inculcate in my team a culture of reliable, systematic processes that you know work the same month in month out uh, but the challenge for me in running md to md is at the other end of the spectrum when we're in the room at the meeting mm-hmm. i need to treat every single member as an individual and remember everything about them in the ideal yep. world um now i'm supporting doing that by with processes a bit because uh, we keep notes of things and we keep mm-hmm. notes of what they're going to do with the actions they're going to implement how they're going to get value out of the, the organization um, but generally, that's about being very flexible at the front end. So what I'm getting at is I'm very clear about what is standard, what is a routine process that's repeatable and scalable, the back office, getting them to the meeting, and what is flexible, which is the face-to-face in the meeting, if that makes sense. And I think every business needs to be quite clear about what is um, personalized and flexible and you do what you need to, to satisfy the customer in their in their organization and what is fixed and standard and routine and automated. You know, if somebody said to me, um, could you send the invites out to the meeting four weeks in advance instead of three weeks in advance? Well, no, I can't because if we start doing that for one person and then somebody else wants it seven weeks in advance, somebody else wants it three weeks, you know, we will get it wrong. I guarantee we will get it wrong. So we have to send the invites out together to everybody attend the meeting. Now, that's being a bit trivial about it. But that's what I'm saying is that you've got to be clear about where you can be flexible and where you can't. 
because being flexible in the wrong place uh, creates uh, you know the char- the high chance of things going wrong whereas being flexible in the right place is customer service the, and going back to the very beginning of this conversation the uh, you know the the hotel the story about you know the personal welcome hello mr jones um, that the doorman's able to say because the security guard has rung them to say, I've just spotted mm-hmm. the registration of the car coming along the drive and it's it's Mr. Jones. Um, actually, when you look at that in more detail, that isn't about uh, the culture, yeah. uh, although obviously culture's got to be important. People can be good at doing that. It's actually about the system and process behind the scenes enables the people at the front to deliver high-quality service, if that makes sense. Do you know, it's interesting, though, because I've seen that done a few times in hotels where they open the door and uh, as you come out of the car, they say, hello, Mr. Nathan, hello, Dr. Nathan, and you, you, you it, it's lovely. Um, however, a lot of businesses are trying to copy that and do it in all sorts of ways, you know, checking on the internet to see what a picture looks like and all this sort of stuff. But actually... The way that uh, it, it was actually the Ritsu started that, the way they do it is really simple. When the car arrives, the doorman opens the boot and takes the luggage while you're paying for the taxi. He looks at the tag on the luggage, and when he opens the door, he knows your name. Um, it's a very simple process, but when, yeah. you, when you make it complicated, it, it makes it difficult. But, but the, the, the caveat with that process is if they can't pronounce the name, they don't try <laughs> Yes. You know, and I'm sure that could go very, very well. You, you see, that's exactly the level of detail you have to get, go to if you want to be excellent. Uh, yeah. and, and I mean that on two elements. That One is looking for the simple solution, not the complex solution. And secondly, uh, knowing where the limits to you, what you can do are and how it will go wrong if you try to, if you, if you get carried away with it, if you don't think it through properly. Bob, you've given us so much to think about. That's absolutely wonderful. Thank you. If people want to get in touch with you or, or talk to you about MD to MD, how do they do that? Um, getting in touch is simple. BB at MD to MD.co.uk. That's letter M, letter D, digit two, letter M, letter D.co.uk. That's um, me at MD to MD. You can look at our website, obviously, same MD to MD.co.uk. Um, my phone number, 01865 600 See, simple thing there, easy to remember number. 01865 600 800. Um, so be delighted to hear from business leaders. You know, we're very uh, open to showing anybody who's what I call an operational business leader with tens or hundreds of staff what we do. Very proud of what we do. And, uh, and you know, that's how we build our business. People come, it, come along, like it, sign up. That's great. And I must say, having been at one of your events, they are absolutely fantastic and some really interesting and impressive people go along as well. So, uh, so very, very good indeed. Bob, one last thought for our listeners. If you could leave them with a golden nugget of service, one thing that they could do in their businesses today or in the years to come to make their business better, what could they do? Measure, understand and learn. To use three words, measure, understand and learn. And, you know, Have a way of finding out what your customers value. Understand that properly and then learn from that what you need to do to improve the business. Bob, wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely chatting with you um, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Great pleasure. Thank you, James. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of the Only One Business Show and I look forward to sharing your company again very soon. If you'd like to subscribe, please do so wherever you pick up your podcasts and in the meantime, have a great day. Bye for now.